Hello and welcome to Obiter Dicta, Bloomsbury Professionals podcast on all things law and tax with me, Rachel Sherlock, and also Gronya McMahon. Today's guest is Roisin Costello, a practicing barrister and assistant professor of EU law at Trinity College Dublin. She is author of Privacy Law in Ireland, which was recently published. Roisin researches and works on EU law, fundamental rights with a particular focus on privacy and property rights, media law, language rights and law and literature. In our episode today, we discuss zones of privacy, the importance of case law in this area and the difficulty of establishing the scope of privacy law. We hope you enjoy this episode. Roisin, welcome to the podcast. It's so lovely to have you here today with us. Firstly, could you tell us a little bit about your new book, Privacy Law in Ireland, and what it's all about? Thanks, Melanie Gornia. Lovely to be with you. Um, So I suppose the book grew out of research and and work I've been doing myself in kind of academia and practice uh, for the last several years. And I kind of, uh, I suppose I came back from the US and the UK where there were an awful lot of books about privacy and discovered we didn't really have a text like that uh, for our own jurisdiction. It was becoming an increasingly important practice area. So I suppose that was maybe what kind of prompted the book in the first place. In terms of the book itself, I think the, the main objective with, with it, it's a kind of a, it's a first edition, hopefully, of many. And uh, the main objective was really to, to offer colleagues, in particular colleagues in practice, a, a jumping off point uh, for engaging with an area of law, which is actually incredibly complex uh, and involves kind of constitutional claims, but also aspects of tort law uh, and can really crop up in a, in a range of in a range of contexts. I think when you when you look at the book, it's broken down into three kind of main areas um, privacy to do with information, to do with individual kind of personality claims and then to do with kind of spaces. And just even in the spaces aspect, and I think we'll probably talk about it a little bit more in the podcast, you just see the range of kind of areas where this can come up, criminal and civil, that huge a range of kind of just civil context then from from family law to kind of traditional kind of defamation claims so there was just a huge demand for a book which would bring together kind of all these disparate issues which touch on privacy and trying to explain how privacy applies consistently across those issues and then the limits on it in in particular contexts. Yes, and it's, I know it's been very well received. It addresses, Roisin, the sources of privacy rights in Ireland before covering decisions concerning personal, spatial and informational privacy, as was developed in statute and case law. And I suppose these are just two aspects of the book. But how challenging, and I know it was, but I want you to explain if you don't mind, how challenging was it to narrow down the law to outline it as it stands in the book? Because I imagine it was an enormous task. Uh, it, it really was. I suppose one of the things I, I spoke about uh, with you previously, Grania, was, well, how will we decide what goes in? And I think one of my my own response and the response of Rowan, who was our consultant editor, was like, how will we decide what doesn't go in? Because there was there was so much material. I suppose in, in terms of narrowing it down, my, my main concern was that it would offer a, a useful guide to colleagues. So there are certain areas that are just incredibly voluminous. So if we think about Article 8 of the ECHR, for example, that is an enormous chapter. Uh, and even then, there just have to be kind of, I suppose, signposted jumping off points for colleagues, for example, who are dealing with an Article 8 claim in the context of an immigration case or an asylum case. So I suppose our our main goal was to provide a very coherent core uh, and to signpost very clearly to colleagues where they could maybe explore something in more depth and where they could find further information on that. It was just impossible, I suppose, to to capture everything. So that was our our, kind of our main goal. Um, I suppose the fear always is that you'll leave out something which somebody subsequently approaches you and says, well, actually, that was incredibly important. I can't believe you left it out. 
Um, happily that hasn't happened so far, but if anybody has those kind of thoughts and they want to email me them, them to me privately, I'm very happy to receive them for the second edition. But yeah, I suppose our, our main goal with the first edition was just to provide a kind of coherent core of privacy law in Ireland uh, and to kind of, sin- kind of indicate very clearly to, to colleagues in, in practice and and academia, if there are kind of students using the, the book, etc., uh, where they could go for, for more information or, or how to begin the research in a particular area with a very uh, concrete idea of, of what was involved. And privacy law has had an established presence in here in Ireland since the case of McGee versus Attorney General. However, it has experienced a huge growth in the last two decades. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, sure, uh, Rachel. So I think maybe the, the perception is that privacy has been driven in particular and it's kind of boom in the last couple of decades by uh, digital technologies. And I, I think that's certainly true to some extent. There are, I suppose, contexts that arise now which would have been um, rarer in the past. So if we think about recent litigation involving, for example, CCTV or covert surveillance, uh, those things are driven to an extent by technological change. But I think there's also a recognition that privacy is this, uh, the Attorney General recently referred to it as an underutilised tort, um, and that it is part of uh, our common law tradition and indeed our constitutional tradition, um, and that it's quite a, a broad claim. So there's been an increasing recognition that it can extend to contexts that wouldn't be covered, for example, by data protection. Um, and I think increasingly litigants are, are recognising that and turning to it. So it, it perhaps is driven in some context by technology uh, changes and, and developments in technology, but I think it's also driven by a recognition that it is actually a quite plaintiff-friendly uh, litigation tool in, in some respects. O'Malley J noted, Roisin, in the case of Wilson and Farrell, that the problem of establishing the boundaries of the zone of privacy is complex and may not be amenable to hard and fast rules in all instances. I suppose I was looking for your thoughts on that comment. Uh, sure. So I think one of the challenges of the book um, for Ronan and I, certainly in the introductory chapters, was to define, you know, what am I talking about when I talk about privacy? And certainly that's a challenge that kind of privacy scholars who work on quite conceptual ideas, as well as those who are focused on practice, uh, face. I think Justice O'Malley's uh, attempt to, to define it is, is quite similar to one made by Mr Justice Charlton previously before he was on the Supreme Court and um, he's on the High Court in EMI and UPC. And it's this idea that you try and define privacy by its context. So it's a contextual right. That's quite challenging in circumstances where it's also a quite limited right. And it's supposed to be balanced as against the rights it competes with. So most usually for us in this jurisdiction, freedom of expression. Um, but I, I think Ms. Justice O'Malley and Mr. Justice Charlton probably have the right idea. Uh, certainly for practitioners, those kind of contextual definitions are the most helpful often. Um, so we try and give a definition in the, in the book in terms of the context in which privacy claims arise. So I think it's Miss Justice Dawn also has a, a kind of checklist for uh, what privacy claims contain. Uh, and we try to build that out a little bit, uh, developing it based on subsequent decisions as well. Um, but it is usually contextual. So there can be, uh, in particular, if we look at kind of the influence of the European Court of Human Rights and the CJU on, on Irish um, views of privacy, privacy is not really amenable to an exhaustive definition and the courts have said that repeatedly. It, it has to be contextual. Um, so I think those kinds of definitions we see in the Irish case though are, they're, they're both helpful and, and accurate um, because trying to pin down what privacy is in a very exclusive fashion, fashion would probably not be helpful either for litigants or for the right itself in terms of, in terms of securing it. Um, yeah, so I think, I think she's right. <laughs> 
And your book is concerned with case law and the area which will be of immense benefit to practitioners navigating through constitutional ECHR and other protections in the area. How difficult is this space now and have you any tips for practitioners? Sure. Uh, tips for practitioners, like tips for students, I think probably quite dangerous. <laughs> um, I suppose in some respects, some of the recent decisions we've had from the, uh, from the Supreme Court have been really helpful. So if you think about McGee and Poor Leash Prison recently, that was very helpful in terms of clarifying the characteristics of, of privacy as a constitutional tort in Ireland. So that had been kind of suggested by some lower courts in, in comments which are maybe arguably obiter and certainly suggested by, by academics. But that's, I think, a very helpful clarifying tool uh, for us as practitioners and something obviously which is impacts, like in that case, on kind of the statute of limitations and, and similar issues. I suppose in terms of tips practitioners, I mean, the thing Ronnie would love me to say here is buy the book and that that's full of all the tips. <laughs> um, but I think in terms of quite practical tips, it is an area which is largely characterised by case law. And um, so while there are usually complementary pleas and data protection, and that's what you would see in practice quite regularly, the cases which are kind of most useful for privacy are ones which are fairly well established and well trodden. So we think about cases like like Herity and others, really the, the case law is the place to start with privacy and I think that's maybe the, the main thing to take away. I think often when people start to look at privacy claims, their instinct is perhaps to reach for the Data Protection Acts or a copy of the GDPR, and that can certainly be helpful in terms of discrete claims. Um, but in terms of kind of the broader privacy claim itself, as distinct from that, uh, really case law is the place to start. I suppose. The, the Bloomsbury updates can be quite helpful uh, and some of the updates done by, by practitioners as well and academics can be quite helpful. So I know Ono Dell and Trinity has a blog where he regularly does kind of updates on, on privacy cases that he finds interesting. Um, and I know um, that uh, Decisis and, and similar places have kind of summaries as well. Um, but I think it's really staying up to date with the, with the case law and the decisions. I think we see that in particular with some of the litigation we've had about material damages claims under the GDPR and under the Data Protection Act. Case law is really kind of where it's at in terms of making sure that you're abreast of the principles as opposed to maybe legislation. Although we've also had indications in the Supreme Court that they'd like legislative change recently. So if you're a criminal practitioner in particular dealing with search warrants, uh, legislation may be something you have to look at uh, sooner rather than later, I imagine. Uh, Roisin, you're, you're right. Uh, there is so much case law in the area of late. And I know that was one of the challenges in this book because it kept on coming out. Can we talk, uh, I guess, about some of these wonderful cases which just provide such I suppose intellectual stimulation for chat and and they're they're just really interesting because they just you know you're all as you say the privacy law is always evolving there was the decision in Quirk a really notable case and that was concerned with the digital and physical spaces but also the application of privacy to digital spaces yeah, absolutely. So, um, Crony's right. We had Ronan and I had a few small extensions as the book was coming due to uh, to try and take into account kind of Supreme Court decisions, which had literally been uh, released kind of a day or two before we were supposed to send the the manuscript off to print. So. Quirk is probably the one we, I think it's the final one we managed to smuggle in, though Grony might correct me. It, an incredibly interesting decision for, obviously for criminal practitioners, it's based around the validity of a search warrant uh, in the Mr. Moonlight case, if anybody remembers the, the facts of that. 
Um, so in some respects, quite, I suppose from a criminal practitioner's perspective, quite quotidian uh, issues in, in some respects. It's, it's about whether the district court judge issued the warrant, having been apprised of all kind of the relevant information in particular, whether there'd been an adequate balancing of uh, potential breaches of privacy or infringements of the privacy right in, in accordance with the principles in Dimash. So in some respects, quite a kind of everyday issue. What happened in, in Quirk though, and I suppose the, the kind of fodder for privacy scholars like me is that the, the warranted issue was granted about the judge having been specifically made aware that it was going to be used to seize and then subsequently search uh, digital devices as well as the space of the home. So uh, a laptop and I think a phone were subsequently seized uh, and searched and uh, on appeal against the kind of validity of the, the warrant itself as opposed to in the substantive criminal appeal and uh, the argument which was made by the appellant and I suppose fleshed out to some extent by IREC in a, in, a, in a brief submitted to the court was this idea that digital devices constitute individual spaces in and of themselves so that you are granted a warrant for the search of the home as a space and then the argument being made seemed to be that these digital spaces required a further or supplementary authorization because they were distinct spaces in and of themselves. Um, I suppose a conceptually compelling argument in some respects, uh, a very tricky one in practice, I suppose for the obvious reason that it requires uh, us to conceptualize digital devices, which are themselves discrete objects as spaces uh, because of the I suppose vast quantity of information they can they can hold, and that's something that's it's touched on by the Supreme Court in the decision. It's something that the superior courts in other jurisdictions have touched on as well. Um, Riley in California before the U.S. Supreme Court is the one the Mr. Justice Charlton his decision kind of dwells on the most, and Mr. Chief Justice Roberts in in that decision in the U.S. talked about this idea that digital devices should be subject to different rules of search and seizure because the nature of the information they hold is both qualitatively and quantitatively different. It is so detailed uh, and so revelatory that it is qualitatively different. And then the volume of information that can be held is, is such that it's, it's quantitatively different as well. Um, and Mr. Chester Strachan considered that uh, to, to a significant degree and I think was really quite compelled by the idea presented that these devices could constitute separate spaces because of that difference in both qualitative and quantitative nature. Uh, but ultimately the legislation he was asked to interpret on that basis um, didn't really allow him to reach uh, that conclusion. So it didn't allow the idea that digital devices could be distinct places under, I think it's section six of the legislation. So instead came up with this idea, uh, I think on the basis that he couldn't interpret the legislation in that way perhaps, um, that these kinds of devices could be digital spaces, but that they were tethered to the space which was searched. It's Perhaps it's going to be subject to, I think, probably some, some debate and some, some maybe some later clarification. Two things that are interesting, maybe from my perspective, the, the first one would be that um, hard drives are treated in the same way, perhaps, as cloud storage. Uh, and that's something that the, the court doesn't seem to maybe have fleshed out to the extent that, that we would like, maybe, as, as observers of the judgment. And um, so there is this idea that the, the digital device itself is kind of the portal which offers you access to this additional space. Um, but there doesn't seem to be a differentiation between material which might be stored on the device itself located within the home 
and material which was accessed through the device but is stored in a remote storage facility. So think about a data centre or somewhere similar. Um, so there doesn't seem to be a, a differentiation drawn uh, particularly between those two. Um, and the result of that maybe is that contrary to what Mr Justice Hogan had previously um, alluded to in, in Trems in, in the High Court um, before he, he was on the Supreme Court bench, I think there's maybe now some um, debate about whether Article 40.5 uh, protections can apply to, to this kind of information. So it may have unwittingly removed a level of protection from certain kinds of information held on digital devices where they're also located within the home. Mr Justice Hogan's uh, idea, albeit it's, it's arguably obiter in trends, was that material private communications information was protected where it was where that communication took place from within the home there would be a protection under the right to privacy in 40.3 then there would be a supplementary protection because of the inviolability of the dwelling and the implication of quirk seems to be that maybe that is, that is not the case and it is just a, a 40.3 claim so it, it's, it's interesting i think there's probably an awful lot to be fleshed out in it and i think we'll probably be talking about quirk for a while i think quirk then came slightly later and I suppose we didn't get the Supreme Court decision in that quite in time uh, for the book, but Corcoran kind of adds a level of, uh, I suppose, further nuance to that in that there is Mr Justice Hogan in that case and Mr Justice Collins both express uh, some dissatisfaction with the way uh, warrants are regulated in legislation. In that case, it's to do with journalistic privilege in circumstances where Mr Corcoran had had his phone seized by the Gardaí as part of an investigation into incidents uh, that he had documented in his capacity as a journalist. He sought to claim journalistic privilege in relation to the contents of the phone, refused to unlock it for the Gardaí, subsequent to their seizure of it. Uh, And this came before the the High Court and then subsequently before the Supreme Court on appeal. And both Mr Justice Hogan and Mr Justice Collins expressed dissatisfaction with the way uh, warrants were were regulated. In in some ways it's a similar kind of claim to to Quirk in that it's, it's talking about how warrants are granted and the level of information that has to be given to the to the issuing judge but the court I suppose refrained from maybe expressing more definitive view on what the contents of the legislation should be and also Mr Justice Collins uh, specifically said it wasn't appropriate for him to express a view about whether Irish law um, generally or, or constitutional law in particular protected journalists from compelled disclosures of their sources so I think Corcoran and Quirk both kind of leave us with them um, probably significant issues that are going to be worked out maybe in, in the form of legislation and incorporation of kind of Tamash principles into uh, disclosure requirements uh, when warrants are sought uh, but also just in, in terms of general privacy certainly in, in, in Quirk just in terms of the, the actual constitutional protection uh, applicable to information where it's received from a digital device in, in a home and I think in Cork and then I suppose privilege as opposed to privacy and, and how journalistic privilege might be provided for uh, in future because there are, are questions in both that are left uh, relatively unanswered. Roisin, I was going to ask you, um, I suppose we know the nature of privacy law that we've been very much led by case law because of the space that it it falls between and all the, the areas that it falls between. I, I, I suppose as a practitioner and as an academic, would you, for those issues in Quirk and Corcoran to be worked out, would you actually welcome I suppose, you know, the hard drive versus the, the cloud, those type of issues. Would you welcome legislation to iron out those issues or would you be, I suppose, satisfied if a further decision was to come from the courts in that area? Like, given the history that we're very much case law led in this area? 
Yeah, it's a great question. And it's, it's something that kind of bedevils privacy advocates in particular. Would we be better off if this was all codified? So there was a proposal kind of, in, was it 2004 for a privacy act in Ireland, which kind of fell by the wayside. But one of the debates is about that and the Law Reform Commission and their paper on the right to privacy several years ago now talked about this idea, should we be codifying this or is it actually better for it to be subject to this kind of uh, common law evolution? I think, I think Miss Justice O'Malley has the right end of it when she says, you know, it's a contextual right. It is very hard to pin down and the zone of privacy is so amenable to shifting in particular contexts. It's actually very difficult, I think, to provide for in legislation. That's not to say that I don't think, as the Supreme Court notes in, in Corcoran, it isn't desirable to have legislation that sets kind of minimum requirements, perhaps in particular in things that are effectively regulatory like warrants, where it would be helpful perhaps to have the principles in Dimash codified as part of a legislative checklist for everybody. Um, so there could be no confusion as to what was supposed to be taken into account. But I think making more significant provision becomes very difficult. And I think there's also a query about whether it's necessary. If you talk to individuals who are involved in kind of data protection in particular, data protection legislation has become so detailed um, that it can actually present real bars for smaller businesses in particular doing things and can lead to people um, being subject to a degree of litigation, which maybe isn't helpful. That's sometimes the view. But then is necessary because uh, data protection is, is so particularly complex and um, so I think we can see maybe in the difference between privacy and data protection the areas that benefit from codification and legislation and the areas that might be better left to kind of judicial development I suppose is the best way to put it. Data protection is an area where even now in the kind of recent decisions to do with material damages we see even the Data Protection Act can't provide all the answers or the GDPR. So there is always going to be a level of judicial involvement in terms of interpretation and application. Um, but I think providing framing principles and privacy is usually as far as legislation can helpfully go because otherwise you're talking about restraining a right really. Um, and potentially as well because the, the character of privacy is so broad in our constitutional schema you're talking about drafting legislation in an area where it'd be quite easy to rub up against the edges of unconstitutionality quite quickly probably so i think i think probably legislation is perhaps more of a, a hindrance in, in certain kinds of privacy litigation than a help really interesting and um, i love the term framing principles i think that's one that we we might have to uh, use going forward in, in some sphere Roisin, could we talk about GDPR and damages under Article 82 claims? I think that's the subject of much litigation in the courts at the moment. Would you be able to give us some background on that? Yeah, absolutely, Ronnie. So mentioned in Corcoran by the Supreme Court has subsequently become kind of a, a bone or some contention controversy at the moment in litigation. So most of this stems from uh, the decision in Austrian Post uh, before the, the Court of Justice. So that involved a claim by... Um, a citizen in Austria against the postal service in that jurisdiction for the collection of data and the use of that data to impute a political affiliation. The claimant challenged that. The claim ultimately ended up before the Court of Justice on a discrete issue, which was whether damages could be awarded under Article 82 of the GDPR for non-material non-material injuries. So the particular claim in Austrian Post was that the claimant had suffered um, a loss of trust and a feeling of generalised kind of upset and um, that he had been uh, kind of uh, generally this was unwelcome affiliation from his point of view and he, he didn't like that the, the information had been collected and the invitation had been made. The Austrian Post decision was, was fairly eagerly awaited because of the implications it has for 
not just, I suppose, data protection law within the European Union, but in particular the kind of uh, very day-to-day data protection litigation we would see in relation to data breaches, where the individual may suffer the harm of the breach of their rights under the GDPR, uh, but may not suffer any supplementary damage to that, so may not have kind of consequential financial loss or or anything similar. So the, the Austrian Post decision is interesting. It the Advocate General, um, I suppose, uh, fudged it maybe a little bit would be the kind way to put it and sort of um, hedged between uh, the damages might be available under Article 82 and also um, the kind of remedies which would be available under Article 79. I suppose, interestingly, for future litigation, the suggestion was that Article 79 could include um, declaratory relief and other reliefs we would be familiar with in common law jurisdictions, but the implication would be that they would obviously be able to extend to civil law jurisdictions as well under Article 79. So uh, causes some concern, I understand, for our colleagues in civil law jurisdictions because it's creating new remedies, uh, but maybe a welcome clarification for us in terms of the remedial discretion the courts have under that. In terms of Article 82, though, the, the decision of the, the court was very much that there's nothing to prevent an award of damages for uh, non-material damage, um, but that the damage has to be actualised, it can't be potential. So they don't address uh, whether, I suppose, we had a, there was a similar case in Lloyd uh, and Google in the UK where there was a, uh, an argument about a loss of control and hurt feelings as being potential grounds for damages under a data protection litigation or data protection legislation rather. The CJU didn't deal with that. All they said was that it, there has to be kind of this actualised harm and there has to be a causative relationship. Now, that's been, uh, I suppose, fleshed out uh, for Irish purposes in particular in a, in a circuit court judgment at Kaminsky and Ballymaguire Foods, which turned around the use of CCTV by an employer uh, without the, the consent of the employee. Employees subsequently challenged uh, the use of that CCTV, claimed that uh, its storage and its use for training purposes um, on a centralised drive where other employees could access it and its identification of him uh, had caused him distress. Uh, and the claim was for uh, damages for this kind of non-material damage. Um, the, the judgment stresses a couple of things. They, they really just rehash the decision in Austrian Post, but in a very kind of clear way. So the emphasis is that there is an entitlement to an effective remedy. So in that, in that sense, there's nothing to militate against an award of damages for non-material harm. Uh, and there's no kind of minimum threshold for non-material harm. But the crucial thing is that it has to be established. Um, so mere breach without any proof of damage won't constitute an entitlement to compensation. The damage has to be, in the words of the court, actual rather than speculative. Um, and I think that raises maybe an issue which we'll talk about in a second. And then there has to be a causative relationship between the breach and the damage suffered, uh, obviously. One of the interesting things, and something that's not really touched on in the judgment, is whether that actualised damage requires an application of the test in Kelly and Hennessy or some similar test for psychological damage or whether it's a different and free-floating test. It's not fleshed out in particular, um, but that's something that I think we're going to see maybe decided in subsequent litigation. Damages and costs, interestingly, in the judgment were going to be dealt with separately. So damages would be affected, uh, the judge said, by steps which were taken to avoid uh, the breach, any remedies that have been offered, apologies, any delay on the part of the party. So all the things we would expect to see and then costs will be dealt with separately. I think perhaps the implication being that there might be circumstances in which uh, somebody is enti- isn't entitled to their to damages, but they may be entitled to their costs. Interestingly, the, the judge said in, in the absence of any guidance to the contrary, he was going to be guided by the Judicial Council Personal Injuries Guidelines. 
and those say that there could be an award of below 500 euro in cases involving income psychological harm but that would obviously be in, in more established uh, lines of case than tort so it'll be interesting to see how, how that uh, pans out as well there are a couple of circuit court decisions and um, i suppose they're circuit court decisions because that is the general or presumed jurisdiction uh, under the data protection act but there's a couple of circuit court decisions stayed at the moment so the one and um, people may be most familiar with is cuneum and parcel connect which is a 2023 decision as well uh, which has been stayed pending a series of further references that are before the court of justice and i imagine there are many other cases that are similarly stayed so there's eight pending references which will kind of add i suppose more meat to the bones of this this area third party they relate to kind of things like third party breaches so responsibility for a third party and kind of vicarious liability the degree of fault and how that affects a claim for damages um, but there, there's eight of them so they're kind of across a range of issues and uh, cuneum has been stayed pending pending the decision those and I, I imagine there are other circuit court decisions that have been stayed as well those are going to add i think quite significantly and in fairly rapid order to a body of law which is only just developing under article 82 so the court has to decide really very much the message from Australian Post was that for, for national courts to decide how to deal with this in terms of procedures, having been given this kind of framing, uh, the, or these framing principles that's coming up again, Grania, uh, by the Court of Justice. So within that, I think we're now looking at a, a situation where I think inevitably some of um, the decisions will be appealed and we'll have higher appellate court uh, cases. We may also just have uh, cases from the High Court due to the, the level of damages involved. But the the pending cases for the CJU are probably what we're waiting for. There are advocate general opinions in some of those, but we don't have any of the judgments yet. And um, so I suppose a busy six months or so for anybody who's, who's engaged with that area and with Article 82 in particular. And then I think Article 79 is going to have uh, potential for litigation in the future as well, given the the range of, of remedies that the advocate general in protect, particular alluded to as being available under Article 79. Some of those are already being utilised by Irish courts in terms of declarations and similar things. But it's interesting to see just kind of the level of remedial discretion there, there could be there. And you mentioned about applying the Austrian Post decision on a national level. How has it been applied in Ireland or how is current legislation dealing with it? Yeah, so there's no uh, there's no kind of legislative dealing with it at the moment. So if legislation does deal with it, I imagine it would be through an amendment to the Data Protection Acts. Um, and some kind of mechanism there in relation to, to damages and the procedure uh, engaged engagement with those cases. Really, the only application we have thus far is in, in Kaminsky and Bally Maguire, uh, and that's obviously a circuit court decision. So I think that what we're waiting for really is a is a decision from the High Court uh, confirming that that is the kind of correct procedure in these kinds of cases, or subsequent to, to these references being decided, kind of looking at, uh, at developing a more kind of um, fleshed out jurisprudence in the area. Routine, that's been really, really useful for practitioners. Can we talk about writing the book with Ronan, the consultant editor on your fantastic new book? Did you enjoy the process or maybe I shouldn't ask that question? <laughs> uh, well, of course, Ronan is a senior colleague, so I can only say yes, Ronia. Well, hopefully it's true in this case. <laughs> so Ronan was actually a pleasure to work with. He's, um, I think it's a great comfort coming on to, to have a senior editor like that come on to a book project as a consultant. I'm in practice, but Ronan's practice is so much more established than mine, uh, and he has so much experience of um, these cases and, and being involved in these kinds of cases. 
And um, so it's great to have that kind of expert uh, resource to defer to as well. And so, you know, have I, I think I've gotten it right on the basis of the decision here, but is there anything in the background I need to be aware of? Uh, is there anything coming down the track that hasn't been reported yet? Um, and I'm kind of framing that in a way that would make sense to, to somebody who's practicing maybe more broadly and maybe media defamation and not just in, in privacy and data protection. So he was a, a wonderful resource. I was incredibly grateful to him. Uh, and happily our friendship has survived as well, which is always one of the main concerns, I think. But yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a really great experience. Um, I think having a consultant editor for these kinds of books is, is really, really invaluable. That's wonderful. And uh, I'm glad it was such a, such a positive experience. We just have our last few quickfire questions. Uh, so very quickly, uh, our first question is top three things you would take to a desert island. Oh gosh, uh, as an exceptionally pale person, definitely SPF, as long as I could get it. Um, uh, and then probably, like, probably just an umbrella as well for comfort. And a good book, yeah, a good book. I'm reading, or I'm trying to reread in my spare time, a book by Maeve Brennan called The Long-Winded Lady, which is a collection of the essays she wrote for The New Yorker, I think in the kind of 50s and 60s when she was living in New York. She was an Irish uh, woman who ended up writing for The New Yorker during a time when it was all men so I'd, I'd love to read that with me because I might actually finally get a chance to, to, to read it again I read it years ago and I'm trying to make my way through it my my next question was going to be what current book are you reading so I take it that's it unless you want to shout out anything else that is it and a, as usual a kind of a, a large pile of legal reading but that is the one <laughs> I'm reading for fun yeah then what was the last time you had a good laugh oh gosh um <laughs> myself or somebody else um, I think one of the funniest things I've heard recently was a colleague who uh, under pressure for a deadline told me uh, with a roll of his eyes that a barrister would agree to any deadline as long as it was the week after next and in particular they might agree to go to the Somme if it was the week after next as long as they could have a fortnight to prepare um, so that made me laugh quite a lot because I think it's probably particularly true <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic and then finally if you could choose another career what would it be Gosh, um, in my misspent youth, I, I wanted to be an architect. So I, if I could choose any career, it'd probably be that. Um, I'd have to remedy my terrible ability with maths, um, I think, or else all my buildings would fall down. But uh, yeah, that'd probably be my, my alternative career in a dream world. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. And just congratulations again on the fantastic book. Thanks so much, Rachel. Thanks, Ronnie. Thanks, Roisin. Thanks again to Roisin Costello for joining us on Obiter Dicta. You can buy her book, Privacy Law in Ireland, on bloomsburyprofessional.com. And you can find it, as well as Roisin's IP bulletin, on our IT and IP online service. Thanks for listening.